put this on the ground after this. <clears throat> and thanks to the worship team, as always, beautiful job this morning. And there's something beautiful and soulful about a cello, isn't there? Yeah, I just, it's just gorgeous. Let's pray together. Father, we trust you. We trust your wisdom. We trust your power. And we trust your mercy. We thank you that you have given us life. And you have surrounded us with so many ways to influence us and to lead us and to guide us. We thank you for the people you put around us to speak into our lives. We thank you for the law that's been written on our hearts. We thank you for your spirit who, who guides us and speaks to us. And so, Father, we, uh, we, uh, we may wait for you to meet with us now. And we thank you for freely offering to us your fellowship with us. Your fellowship in spite of our flaws, in spite of our failures, in spite of our, our, uh, our negligence, our apathy, that you, you decide to meet with us. And so, Father, we are asking that, that the peace will truly reign in our hearts that your Holy Spirit brings, and that so that we can approach you with both confidence and humility. Father, let us carry us this morning your spirit in our hearts and that we leave behind at the door outside all of our frets and our worries and our shame and our, our thoughts of anger and malice and that we surrender it all to you this morning and that we walk in your will. We walk that your peace will be our peace and your love will be our love and that we will rest in that. We ask to be of service as well, that uh, you give us the joy that comes with serving you. For, Father, there is no one else on earth that we desire to be with than you. Father, teach us not to just to think of ourselves, but to hold others before you. And, Father, we do that right now. We want to hold others before you. And I'm going to ask you guys to hold them, your people people that you know and love before the throne just for a few minutes in silence. First of all, Lord, we hold our friends before you. We list them by name. Father, we hold those who we work with and volunteer with before you this morning. Father, we hold those that are carrying burdens before you. And Father, we lift those who are, are manning the outpost of your kingdom in places that are far from us in other cultures and other languages. And Father, we finally lift up the lonely to you, that they will find companionship in you and companionship and friendship in us. Lord, you are the one God, the true Father of us all. We ask that you be near us this morning as individuals, but also as a community. And we ask this in the name of the Savior. Amen. We are uh, finishing up 
this week, uh, Life in the Spirit, or the sub-series of that, of hearing God for normal people. And I think we're going to have to reboot this, Mark, or let's see. Do I need to reboot it? The, um, I'm not, it's not working. We can, it may be just kind of a hassle. I have to keep, am I doing this wrong? Or the, the piece is in. What's that? <laughs> okay, okay, we'll do next slide. The figurative, the, 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 the metaphorical clicker here. Uh, <clears throat> This morning we got this. We want to raise the question of um, of hearing God from normal people, but the question of what do we want, and we'll look at that in a minute. But go ahead in the next slide, there, Mark. Uh, it's impossible to cover all these topics in just a few sermons. I mean, it's deep, it's uh, it's complicated, and just give me thirty minutes a Sunday. You know, there's just there's just no way. All I can do is introduce the idea and maybe give you a thirst for this. But I do want to mention some tools that I found very very helpful. Um, in, uh, in dealing with listening to God and hearing God. First one is the decision-making in the will of God. It is a classic. It was written by Gary Friesen, who's a uh, professor. He teaches here at Multnomah Seminary. And he wrote the book, I think, back in the 80s, and they've reprinted it because it's updated. And it's such a classic, uh, especially for those who are trying to find out what God's will for them in this moment. And is there a way to do that? Is, is it even a thing to search for? And so I, I really recommend this. I recommend this to a lot of young people. Uh, the next one, Mark, it's and, uh, Hearing God by Dallas Willard. By now you know how much I have this man crush on Dallas Willard. Um, but uh, this is an excellent book uh, on the, kind of the theology, but also very practical on hearing God. And then finally the last one is called The Inner Compass uh, by Margaret Slilf. And it's just a thin little book, but it's just really very, help, very helpful of, of how we hear God in our prayers and things. And I think this is, these are just a few things that are real helpful. The question, we're going to go ahead and the next one, <clears throat> and the next one. <laughs> the question uh, Jesus asked in the, in the passages we just heard from, uh, from Laurel is this one, what do you want? And that's what we're going to be dealing with today. And uh, when I was telling Kendra this week about the theme was, what the title was, where we're going with this, is the question is, what do you want? She said, do, do you have any songs for this? Do you have any requests or any ideas of music? And I said, well, the only two that come to my mind is, you can't always get what you want from the Rolling Stones. And, and uh, I still haven't found what I'm looking for by YouTube. And uh, she wasn't convinced she could learn those in the last, in, in three or four days to do that for us this morning. So, but those are the songs that, that, that mean, that kind of sum this up. And I really like YouTube's I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Uh, because that kind of sums up, at least it kind of sums up my Christian life, my life in general. And uh, I, I heard an interview with him, with Bono, once, and he said, this is an anthem about faith and longing. It's about security and questions. In other words, yes, we have found Christ, hopefully, and maybe we have found Jesus, maybe you have, and, and yet, at the same time, we're still longing for something. We still have that, I still haven't found what I'm longing for, what I'm searching for, and I think that's really true. I mean, there, there are days that I believe there are days that I strongly believe and uh, where the sunset just shines off the Columbia River and it's just gorgeous or the children are playing down at the children's park on the corner of our house and it's just such a joy. Uh, there are times where I just am with, with friends that 
and this overwhelming sense of love just comes over me. There's this idea of, of, uh, of music sometimes just moves me incredibly. Or I, I'm enjoying reading the, the New Testament on my front porch in the morning, in the early mornings. And the story of Jesus is just so compelling. And uh, there are times where I just feel vulnerable and I need God. And those are the times when I, I really, really believe. But there are days where I don't. And I'm going to be honest with you. There are days where I have these doubts. And I'm not really sure about things. And those, those are the days when the Psalms are so useful. Because we kind of tend to have a tendency to kind of remember the gentle Psalms, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, those kind of Psalms, Psalm 23. But we have to be honest with all the Psalms. And you see the Psalms reading through and you see anger and you see, and you see frustration and disappointment and, and doubt and, and, and just not even, not sure they believe. You see these things. And so the Psalms for me give me the words that I don't have. And I find them very useful in those days that I just really have trouble believing. I'm like that man in Mark chapter 9 who had the demon-possessed boy, and he comes to Jesus and says, he says, you have to come by faith. And he says, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. To me, that's the song. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There is faith there. There's trust there. I know. I believe, but Jesus, help me with my unbelief. That's where we're headed here. Uh, when I was at um, Pueblo Bible Seminary, I was the, the, served also as the dean of students. And, and then the same is true at Northwestern. I dealt a lot with young students, young people who were trying to find their, their way in life, trying to get directions. And part of my job was to help them find that direction, to help them see where they were going and what God's called them to do and where they want to go. And I had that same sort of position at Northwestern College in Iowa. And it's, just, and it's, a, it's a thrilling thing. And I wish I could offer you a formula this morning to say, this is how you do it, you know. And, uh, I mean, Gary Friesen wrote a book, a whole book about it. And he finally says, hey, this is not, there's no formula for how you do it. But I have learned a few things along the way. And when you hear that question of what do you want, it, it, it kind of maybe rubs us the long, wrong way. Usually we only hear that question in restaurants. When the waiter or server says, you know, what do you want? Hopefully not nicer than that, but uh, what, do you, what can I do? Or, or in a coffee shop where they say, uh, um, what can I get started for you today? You know, I, I still drink black coffee, and I think that's just such a weird thing for me. You know, well, you can put on the pot if you want, you know, but just give me a cup of coffee. But that's where we normally hear that song, but, I mean that question. This morning we heard it twice, twice within 15 verses in Mark with two different, three different people. And they're almost word for word. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want? Almost word for word repeated. Jesus asked it twice, once to the disciples and once to Bartimaeus. So we go back to Luke, I mean Mark chapter 10, and Jesus is headed for Jerusalem, and he knows what's waiting for him. He knows the torture, he knows the death, he knows what's coming. You don't do the, the things Jesus did. You don't say things the way Jesus said them and not expect to avoid trouble in Rome. He knows what's headed. He knows where he's going. And he's headed to Jerusalem for this. And the disciples, two of the disciples, uh, come to Jesus, James and John. Now, according to Mark, uh, the, there were two sets of brothers in the disciples, and they were the first disciples called, Peter and Andrew and James and John. 
And so you kind of get this feeling that James and John, these two brothers are trying to do a preemptive strike on Jesus, you know, to try to outmaneuver the other disciples and get their place in glory. And he says, we want to sit at the left and the right hand of your glory. Now, we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story that when Jesus was on the cross and they nailed the picture, the, the, the sign on the top of the cross that said, King of the Jews, who was on his left and his right? Two revolutionary thieves. And Jesus says, do you really know what you're asking? Do you really know what you're, you're asking for? He says, are you willing to be baptized with my baptism? Are you willing to drink the cup that I'm drinking out of? Now, the cup is probably the cup of Isaiah 51, this cup of suffering. The baptism they, they saw in the first part of Mark, and that was his anointing and his commissioning. We have to get both those together. And Jesus is saying, are you willing to take the same anointing and commissioning that I am? And they're like, whatever it takes, Jesus, we'll do it. Whatever it takes. And he says, yeah, you might. You might have to do that. And sure enough, they did. James was executed in Acts chapter 12. And John was exiled to the island of Patmos. The very next story is a blind man. And remember, they're going away, they're going toward Jerusalem. And the blind man's yelling out, Son of David, Son of David. And the people are trying to shush him. Now, why were they trying to shush him? Well, maybe because anybody who claims to be the Son of David is in big trouble. And if he's in trouble, we're all in trouble. Or it's possible that the blind man was the only one who saw. That he was the only one who saw who Jesus was. And they said, Come on, we'll take you over there. Jesus says, Come on over. And Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And probably most of the crowd would be saying, well, can you give me a couple of denarii? Can you give me a couple of coins? But he's the one who believes that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. So the blind man asked, I want my sight back. And Jesus said, it's done, by faith. And Jesus is saying, I think that by faith, that's how we see who Jesus is. By faith, that's how we see the kingdom of how it works. And what does the guy do? He throws off his cloak to go and follow Jesus. Now, I love, you probably know by now, that I love comparing and contrasting passages in Scripture. And right before this, Jesus is talking to a rich man. Right before these two stories. And what does he tell the rich man? you got to give up everything to follow me. So what does the blind man do? He gives up everything. He only had one thing, a cloak, that kept him warm, and he gave it up to go follow Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. Two questions, two different answers. Jesus was trying to help them identify and clarify exactly what they wanted. The two disciples, they wanted power. The blind man wanted to see. They both, all three of them eventually came around. But Jesus helped them clarify what they want. What was their real desire? Unfortunately, go ahead the next, next, uh, unfortunately, there's a, the word desire has a disreputable reputation. Go ahead and put the other one up there. We don't like that word as Christians for some reason. It sounds selfish, my desires. We either think of sexual desires or wanting something materially. And those are not proper in church settings. When one is one of the greatest gifts God ever gave us, not only is it pleasurable 
and it creates and expresses intimacy, and it continues the human race. And the other is normal of clothing, shelter, and food. That's the Lord's Prayer. It's full of that. Those are not wrong. Those are not, they don't need to have a feeling of selfishness in us. This is not honoring God by denying that. And so we need to honor our desires. And those desires are perfectly fine. They're perfectly normal. Women especially are taught to be nothing but giving up my desire. If I have any desire at all, it's because I'm being selfish. And I have to give it all up. I heard one woman say, we're off in the harbor. We're always the harbor, but never the ship. And that's the kind of feeling we teach. But we, I'm, saying, I'm going to say this morning that this desire is actually from God. That we can deepen our desires. Now, there is a difference between holy desire and selfish wants. Surface, superficial wants. But our desires, the true desire tells us, our desires tells us who we are, who we're going to become. It tells us uh, what we are supposed to do. Our desires tell us uh, what does God think about us and what do we think about God. When we start asking about our desires, it reveals a lot about us and it helps us clarify those things. But they're not bad. We just have to get over that of what those desires are supposed to be. Now think about it. If we don't have any desire, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. If we had no desire, we wouldn't leave the house. If we had no desire, we wouldn't read a book. We wouldn't learn anything new. We wouldn't grow. We wouldn't change. We wouldn't have two people who create a third person. This is not a bad thing. We have to get over this. But we have to know what those desires do and how we can identify them and clarify them. We have to determine what those desires are, what the real desires are. And we need to share them with God. And Jesus is asking us this morning, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want me to do? If we don't share our desires with God, then, it's, then it stunts our relationship with him. He, we keep him at, law, at arm's length. Just think about your best friend or your spouse. If you don't ever share your heart with that person, then you're keeping them at arm's length. Well, for God, it's the same way. If we don't share our hearts with God, if we don't share our heart's desire with God, we're just keeping them at arm's length. And that is a slander against God. That we don't want to get that far. So we need to determine our desires and, and examine those. Because those desires tell us who we are, who are we, who are we to become. The desires help us to find our way. Our desires help us to find our place in God's plan. This is how God fulfills his kingdom agenda, is our desires. And I will submit to you this morning that we're talking about hearing God, that our desires is maybe not the fundamental way, but it certainly is a fundamental way that God speaks to us. This is how we hear God often is through those desires. So let's go ahead and I think, yeah. So where do we start? Let's go on to the next one there. You start with being honest with God. Go ahead and put the other one up there, Mark. 
We start with being honest with God about our desires. We start about being honest about our lack of faith because we're afraid to express those desires to God because we think that he doesn't care or we think that it, our desires are just so, so trivial and don't, you know, it's so, they're so minor. But if they are important to you, they are important to God. And if we don't grasp that, we are, we are minimizing God's love for us. If it is important to us, it is important to God. We think, oh, it doesn't care. We don't, you know, he doesn't care. I don't feel, it doesn't, you know, we, we don't want to be honest with him because he really doesn't. It's too trivial. And, and we think when we have these desires and we have these, these longings for something that we don't want to share with him because we think, it's, oh, it's just silly. We're just being stupid or we're just being selfish. Share them with him and he will help you clarify them. We also need to be honest. Go ahead and put the other one. We also need to be honest to God about our sin. Where we are, what we've done, what our attitudes are. Where have we wronged? God, where have we wronged our, our spouse? Where have we wronged our friend? Be honest about it. And then the last one, we need to be honest about our disappointments with God. And you say, oh, I would never say that to God. I would never tell God I was disappointed in him. Why not? David did. That's perfectly okay. That's why the Psalms are so important. That's why praying the Psalms, I har kind of harp on that over and over again. It's so important because that gives us the words, that gives us the vocabulary to be honest with him. And yes, I am disappointed. I am disappointed with this. But God's okay with that. He can handle that. He can handle our truth. Go ahead and do the next one, Mark. Be honest with yourself. What you want, what you need. Sometimes we think about if I could just diagnose and get treated, you know, then, then I'll, I'll be okay. But what ends up happening is sometimes we just end up blaming ourselves or we end up blaming someone else. We need to be honest with ourselves of why we need this or why we want this. Why, why is it, and, and ask why about three times. Sue and I had a, had a spiritual director in Yankton, uh, um, South Dakota, before we moved out here. Uh, it, was a, it was a nun. And she was just amazing at getting below the surface. We were both about uh, in some transition, and, and Sue had experienced a lot of loss, and, and uh, we were thinking about, should we leave, leave Iowa, that kind of thing? And she had this great way of just, just digging down deep beneath before he goes to get to the real need and what we really desire. And she just kept asking, why? Why do you want to go to Hood River, Oregon? <laughs> Why do you want to do that? And answer those questions in a truly honest way. Next. Then, then after you're honest with God and you're honest with yourself, then you can start paying attention to the world around you, but in a different way. You start to see the world a little bit differently. You start to see where God is acting and God is working. And you start to see where is my place in this, in this big creative narrative that he is telling this this new creation that he is implementing that he's inaugurating since the resurrection where is my role in this and you start to see the world not as an antagonistic place not as an enemy place but a place of where can i where does god want me to be and what does god want me to do and not only that not only where god is working but we can also start to see the world as things that are the play, the things that are competing for what's in our heart the things that are competing with the true desire in our heart. 
and be able to name them and call them out and say, that's false, that is not true, that is not good, that is just competing for God's place. So we pay attention to the world around us. We pay attention to those things that we see that's, that envy is by far the worst enemy of what, the, the worst enemy that competes for the place of God in our heart. Envy that says, I want what they have. I wish I had what she had. I wish I had his. That's the enemy. We can start to pay attention to the different world. And then finally, finally we can ponder the question, what do you really want? What do you really want? This is a life-altering question. And Jesus is keenly interested in what you truly want. He really, really is. And it opens our minds to what God wants for us. And we become that outpost of the kingdom of God where he has put us. And we, we, are, we, we get suspicious of that word desire because oftentimes our sinful nature ends up devouring what we feel is beautiful. And so we look around us and we, we desire the good, we desire the beautiful, we desire the true. Those are the big three trans, transcendent values. The good, beauty, and truth. And we value those and we want those. But our sinful nature sometimes wants to take it over and we end up devouring what we think is beautiful. So we really need to get down and say, what do I really, really want? Now, I have a lot of lists this morning, so we're going to see another one. <laughs> I just want to give you a list really quickly of, I think, the common ways that Jesus reveals our true wants, our true desires. I think what Jesus says, what do you want? He wants us to get to the point where we see, I want you. I want you in my heart. I want you in my life. And I'm just going to give you some things that I think show where God is revealing our true desires. Okay, the first one our inborn desire reveals itself through a feeling of incompletion. This feeling of, of, of everything, you may be happy as a clam, but you're going, something's missing here. Something's not right. It's a restlessness. It's a, it's a dissatisfaction. Uh, it's something, you know, like, like you two sing, like Bono sings, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There's something there, some kind of, some kind of incompleteness there. And you don't need to handle it stoically without emotions. You need to figure out where it is. And it could be a radical decision, a decision to leave Iowa and come to Hood River. It could be a major decision about who you're going to marry or a job or something like that. But it could be just a new perspective that God wants to give you a new vision of things, a new way of looking at stuff, a new perspective. Augustine said that our restless hearts only find rest in thee. And that is so true. This feeling of incompletion means we have a restless heart and we can only find rest in him. This feeling of, of inconsistency. And if you think, and if you think that if I just got a hold of this thing or I had this experience and then I'm going to be this happy person, all you are doing is setting yourself up for the next episode of depression. And if nobody's ever told you that, I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> that if you think that is the answer, this experience, this thing, this whatever it is you want a hold on to, and this is going to do it for me, you're only going to set yourself up for the next episode of depression. 
That doesn't mean those things are bad. You just need to put them in perspective. A feeling of incompletion. Next one, common longings. This is just something that happens to you just, that just touches you. So it's seeing something ordinary, but then it becomes extraordinary, and then it almost becomes transcendent. And you go, and if you pay attention, this is, you say, this is what God's speaking to me. This is the way God is showing his love. Two, the two weeks ago when I was on my retreat, I was, the day I was leaving, I was, I was coming out of the cabin. I was going to the prayer room in the morning. And right there in the pond behind it was perched this great blue heron. And I love great blue herons. I don't know why. They're just a majestic bird. We see them all the time in East Texas. And uh, to see one up here was just a thrill for me. So I go into the prayer room after that. I'm leaving, and I'm getting ready to go home, and I'm walking by this bush with these bright red flowers. You may know the flower. I don't. I don't know flowers. But there were these two hummingbirds, and they were flitting around, drinking the nectar. You could, I was close enough to see their tongue. And they even perched for me so I could get some pictures of them. And so I go from the great blue herring to these tiny hummingbirds, and I have to see, and it, for some reason it overwhelmed me with emotion. And I have to say, that was God speaking to me in a warm way. And we see that in the West, we don't really capture that. We have those experiences and we go, oh, it's just because I'm overwrought or I'm tired or I'm overly emotional right now. And we, we attribute it to anything but God. Amen. Why do we do that? Amen. But you take those moments and you go, this is God speaking to me. Remember the story of Naaman in Kings, in, first, in uh, Second Kings? He gets leprosy. He's a, he's a military general. He gets leprosy, and his, and his servant girl who's Jewish says, go, go, bathe, go, go see Elisha. And Elisha says, go bathe in the Jordan River. And he goes, I'm not going to do that. And his servants say, look, if he had told you to do something hard and complicated, you would have done it. But the simple thing of going into the Jordan River, you don't want to do. And that's kind of our mindset. You know, if it's, if it's really big, you know, okay, well, I'll do it. But seeing a couple hummingbirds and you have this kind of emotional reaction to it for some reason, that's God speaking to you, most likely. Just listen up. The next one is uncommon longings. This is when God does something that only God can do. And it leaves you in awe. It could be a healing it could be arranging circumstances, something that only God can do. You may, if you're lucky, you may have had a, this kind of experience two or three times, maybe. For me, it's been very rare. But these uncommon loggings. Okay, the next one is this incredible, exalting happiness. This exalt where you're just overwhelmed with love and, and thrill and exaltation. And there's... You know, there's two incidences that remind me of this. One is when I turned around to see Sue walking down the aisle, and I was so incredibly happy. And the other one was the first time I held my daughter. I was so incredibly happy. This is God speaking. With its, if you're, with friends, you maybe just, or I've had conversations with friends in my office or just over coffee or something, and suddenly I have this incredible love for them. And I don't know why. That's God. That's God speaking to me. It's just this deep love of believing in the beautiful. And I don't know about you, but 
It's the beautiful that causes me to believe more than anything else, more than any other airtight argument that I might hear. Great, wonderful, okay, it sounds logical, but it's beauty, goodness, and truth that makes me want to believe, that brings me back to the Christ. The next one is clarity. Sometimes we have these moments where it's just, it all makes sense. And you have this feeling of, of consolingness, of peace. That you, you're making a decision to marry someone or to get a job or to make a change or, or, to, or to make a phone call and you just have this peace. It's just, it's just so clear. Um, the next one, a desire to follow. For whatever reason, you may be prompted to say, I need to follow Jesus. It's just because I really have got this experience of that I am a loved sinner. That I am a person with flaws who is loved by God. That's why... <clears throat> Uh, I've had a little bit of criticism from some every, every now and then is that I don't ever preach on hell. And not that it's not that I don't believe that exists, that our separation from God exists, anything like that. It's just that, that we, a lot of people may have made decisions at a revival meeting or something like that. But the thing is, they can make a decision out of fear, but fear doesn't last, or at least it doesn't for me. What lasts is knowing that I am loved. That's what lasts. That's what's going to carry me through in the in-between times of revivals that we talked about last week. That's what's permanent. The fear I will eventually get over. But I will never get over being loved as a flawed person, as a sinner. The next one, a, desi a desire for goodness and holiness. We have the idea that holiness is not attractive, but it is incredibly attractive. I have known some truly holy men in my life. And it's always like, I want to be like Paul Peasley. I want to be like Walt Baker. I want to be like Malin Collins. These guys were holy. These guys were, were, were good, good men, and they are attractive. This is not self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is repulsive. Holiness is attractive. That's what draws us. And the last one is vulnerability. When our defenses are down. I'm not saying that God makes us sick. He is in the business of healing, not causing sickness. But for some reason, when we are suffering, the defenses drop. And we come searching for God. My mother grew up in a very strict, very strict uh, Southern Baptist home and uh, she was a teetotaler till the day she died she was very 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 legalistic and she was also very afraid to die it's the strangest thing she was always had a fear of death but as she was in her hospital in the hospital in the last few days she had a dream and she had a dream where she was with Jesus and she saw my dad's mom her mother-in-law who was probably the most sweetest, most patient person I've ever known. And she said, there was Mama Mooney. And she told my sister, I'm not afraid to die anymore. For some reason, our defenses fall down and we are open. It's not because we lose reason or because we become irrational. It's because we're more open. We're more available. So here's the good news. God is the seeker. 
God is the seeker. Finding God and being found by God are the same thing. He is the seeker. He is the one who leaves 99 sheep to go looking for you. He is the woman who frantically is sweeping the house looking for that coin. He is the one who runs to the prodigal son, the rebellious son, and he also runs to the curmudgeon, uh, you know, obsessive, compulsive, obedient son. He's the one who runs after us. He is the seeker. And he makes us aware of that innate desire to know him and to be with him. He is the seeker. And he will meet you wherever you are. And I know that's a cliche, but we need to contemplate on that a bit, that he will meet you wherever you are. He didn't love Jacob because he was a cheat. He loved Jacob because he loved Jacob. Jacob's life would have been a lot easier if he wasn't a cheat, but he was. But God loved him. Jesus always, he did not wait for anybody to change before he approached them. Never. He always initiated. He always went to them. He went to them when they were busy, when Matthew was sitting in the tax collector's booth, when Peter was mending nets. He met people at their worst. He met the woman caught in adultery. He met with the, the woman who was in bleeding for six years. He met with the one who was demon-possessed. He met them at their worst. He met them when they were busy. He met them when they were, were apathetic. He is the seeker. And not only that, wherever you are, that's where he will meet you. And the positive side of that, if you are a parent and you just, just love your children, chances are you will see him in the faces of your child or your grandkids. If you really love nature and you like being out fishing or hunting or hiking, then you, very likely you will see him on the seaside. You will see him in the woods. You'll see him on the river. You'll see him in the flowers. You'll see him in the hummingbirds and the heron. If that's where your joy is, if you like action, he will see, you will see him in your work. You will see him in your volunteerism. If you like art, then go to a museum and you will see him in the museum. Go to a concert, go to a movie, read poetry. If that's your thing, if that's where it gets you happiness, that's where God will meet you there. God will meet you there. Wherever you are, you just need to know where to look. And get rid of this Western prejudice of, oh, I'm just being sentimental or I'm just being emotional. No, that's where God speaks to you. That's where we meet him. That's where we see him. I'm going to ask the worship team if you guys will come on up and let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have taken an interest in us and we don't know why. Um, sometimes we don't even like ourselves. But you like us and you love us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.